0: Welcome to another episode of Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Mullaney with Senior Housing News. In this episode, we're exploring the rise of intergenerational senior housing communities in interviews with Belmont Village founder and CEO Patricia Will and Bob Turner, a development management consultant for Otterbein Senior Life. Before we get to those interviews, I'd like to thank our podcast sponsor today, Point Click Care. They know financial health is integral to your success and wanna help you reach your goals. Connect with Point Click Care at Argentum, April 15th through 17th, to learn how they can help you achieve financial success. Intergenerational programming has long been a component of senior living communities, but providers and developers are more focused than ever on creating buildings and operational models that bring people of all ages together. This is being driven by consumer demand as baby boomers and their adult children are seeking out options for senior living that are integrated into the fabric of communities. From urban mixed-use projects and master-planned communities to university partnerships, senior housing communities are increasingly becoming destinations for people of all ages. In our first interview, I spoke with Patricia Will, who offered a glimpse into how Belmont Village is responding to and driving this trend. Houston-based Belmont Village is one of the largest senior living providers in the nation with a portfolio of nearly 30 properties. Here's my interview with Patricia. All right, Patricia, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So I'm wondering just to start out the conversation, if you can just sort of describe what intergenerational senior living means to you. And what your vision is, what the Belmont Village vision is for creating intergenerational communities. And maybe if there are communities in your portfolio that you would point to as examples of, of intergenerational, I'd be interested in hearing about
1: those. Well, from our point of view, intergenerational senior living means that you genuinely create an environment where multiple generations are sharing in everyday life and activities, experiences, in a very rich and deliberate way. Uh, For us, the most pointed examples of this come from the communities that we've built in affiliation with major universities, where you have the opportunity to engage uh, undergraduate students and graduate students in the fiber of, as well as professors, in the fiber of everyday life at the community.
0: Great. And, uh, you know, I think... That, that gets at the fact that intergenerational kind of dovetails with a lot of trends we're seeing in senior living operations and development, whether it's university partnerships, kind of mixed use developments where communities are being built in urban centers around schools and around multifamily housing, et cetera. And I think some of these trends we've seen pick up in recent years, and some of them seem to have been around for a while. So I guess one reason I really wanted to talk to you about this topic is because you've been kind of around since the you know pioneering days of senior living, kind of creating modern day senior living with the earliest Belmont villages. So I'm wondering if you can talk about kind of then versus now, and the extent to which intergenerational really is kind of a hot new concept versus Do you think it's always been in the DNA of private pay, independent living, and assisted living?
1: Well, let me say this. First, for us, it's been in our DNA, if not from the very beginning, pretty early on. Uh, We began working uh, with UCLA on an affiliated community where their retirees and alumni would get priority entrance into the community about a mile from the campus, but where there is and has always been... Very, very rich intergenerational programming. They actually got the idea for that and selected us to do it back in the early to mid 2000s. It takes a long time to do things, so we actually didn't break ground until 2007 and opened the building in 2009. But we would need an hour uh, for the podcast for me to be able to describe uh, during the ensuing 10 years the uh, daily. Engagement of uh, everyone from UCLA fraternities and sororities, their a cappella groups, their Herb Alpert School of Music, various internships that uh, we run at the community with their psychobiology and gerontology uh, departments, the American Language, UCLA American Language Center, their international students participate in a variety of activities at our community. The UCLA women's basketball team visits Westwood, the UCLA Westwood community, and hosts Q&A with residents. We currently have a program that I really love that started a number of years ago. One of the deans got the idea to do this, where you match 12 strangers who live in our community with UCLA students. So it's a UCLA emeriti and uh, or alumni and a UCLA student, and they're paired to, during the course of a year for periodic dinners and engaging conversation. So, you know that that's a, a small uh, feeling of flavor. Both of those groups, that is to say, the students and the residents, also engage uh, with one of the best preschools in West LA, which is at the church that is right next door to us. We have, among our residents, award-winning book off, children's book authors. So both of those groups also engage with the preschool in a very meaningful way. These things don't... So so we've been doing this at that campus, and I'll talk a little bit about at Berkeley, uh, where we've put all of that on, on steroids. But I think these things don't happen by accident. There really has to be almost what I would say joint governance and planning, uh, where the residents themselves are very engaged and involved because they know what can be tapped at a university and what they want. The student groups are very engaged and hopefully um, a retiree-based university alumni and emeriti association gets involved. With that, you can uh, really count on the fact that the level both of stimulation, but also of understanding. Um, I think it's terrific for younger people who are embarking on their careers to recognize and engage with the wisdom and wit of our oldest generation. And that happens every day at these communities.
0: Right. So I think that that sort of is a nice description of a lot of the kind of uh, benefits can come from intergenerational living get you get a sense of how much vibrancy it brings into the community and I guess to the extent that we are hearing intergenerational living thrown around a lot. Recently, as you know I, I think we're reporting on a lot of projects that are touting that they're intergenerational maybe more than than in the last few years, wondering if you do think that there has been some kind of either greater recognition of these benefits within the senior living industry than in the past, or do you think that consumer expectations have started to change we've heard that as the boomers come in, they might have different wants and expectations, or at least are more vocal about what they want from senior living than maybe previous generations. So I'm wondering if you're seeing any of those things sort of coming to pass that might be driving the trend toward intergenerational.
1: Actually, uh, interestingly enough, a lot of metaphors there, a lot of different things that we, we, we need to address. But what I would say is this. First, uh, I think that the biggest impetus is coming from, in our case, universities themselves. That is to say the recognition that their um, alumni in America want and need something more out of seniors housing, something with a lot of intellectual stimulus and engagement than previously. That combined uh, with a generation of younger people who want purpose, I think is causing this trend uh, to uh, develop uh, with respect to mixed use slightly different issues uh, we combined all of the above at a project that we completed on UC Berkeley land about we completed it about a year and a half ago uh, again very long in the making um, and, and complex to do, but it's a site that belonged to the university within a mile or so of campus that has uh, behind it a uh, sh- school, uh, preschool um, that really is for university constituents, a ball field, and um, graduate student uh, housing. We, together with a retail developer, uh, developed it mixed use. And again, uh, yeah, so it's, it's ground zero with respect to its location and uh, the other generations that uh, live adjacent. But again, more importantly, we uh, planned this community with a very, very rich uh, group of emeriti and the retiree center at the university to take everything that we could think of and everything that we they could think of with respect to combining uh, programming for the two. So you've got both mixed-use retail, restaurant, uh, senior housing building all uh, together. Uh, You've got the intergenerational housing uh, with their graduate student housing. You've got the school for little kids. And then on top of all of that, you've got very, very rich programming that occurs both on campus for our residents, but also... At our building, the the number of programs that we engage in there, Cal Berkeley students do a reader's theater at the community where they visit the community to talk about a book and lead an activity and discussion. We have an art competition among the fine arts students, and the vernissage for the competition is at our community. And the judging panel, uh, I've had the privilege to be on, but it's largely uh, our residents and very engaged community that comes to see the vernissage, the, uh, the art that the students create. We've got an after-school university for science, technology, engineering, arts, and math that serves 5- to 12-year-olds. And those kids come into our community and learn from our residents, as well as Berkeley students. So I could, again, go on, but I think this sort of thing, the impetus for it is, yes, coming from the seniors, not really, to be honest with you, yet the baby boom generation. Uh, We're a ways from uh, taking care of and housing that generation, but from the seniors themselves who want to continue to engage in a manner that they did when they were younger with uh, younger generations specifically on campuses. With respect to the mixed use, invariably, uh, we have found that to the maximum extent possible, seniors want to be where the action is. And to the extent that whether it's Lincoln Park in Chicago, where we're part of a a wonderful mixed-use campus that I know you know, Tim, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or the one that I'm describing in Berkeley, or the one that we built uh, that is truly mixed-use in Mexico City, the impetus to be close to where there's vibrancy, activity, where notwithstanding mobility constraints, people can get out and enjoy something beyond the community, and where it's very easy within walking distance to bring the community in, is something that I think
0: our seniors uh, thrive on. Great. Yeah, I think Belmont Village has some great projects in prime locations, and I want to talk a little bit more about those projects. But I guess I'm also wondering if you can speak to creating intergenerational experiences in communities that might be outside of city centers that aren't um, kind of on the heart of a university campus or adjacent to university campus. I know there's still obviously a lot of senior living communities being built in more suburban areas, even if there's a trend toward more urban development. And I imagine it might be harder to get that mixing of different age groups in those locations. Am I? I, that- I think,
1: I think it, you know, it, yes, certainly it's harder to get the daily richness of programming that you're combining with somebody who's adjacent or very, uh, very close. But once that's in your DNA, I think that you can go well beyond pretty much in suburban environments. We're not in any rural environments, but in large suburban environments, uh, it's, you, know, you can go well beyond uh, the wonderful programming that kind of everybody has with small children coming in to do Suzuki violin playing, which I think is great, but I think you can go well beyond that. My dad lives in a Belmont village in Houston, and I walked into the community recently to pick him up to go somewhere that we had planned, and I had to wait for him to uh, finish a talk that he was giving to, he's 88, to uh, private school students of a approximate private school to our community. They were all high school students. They come in for, uh, uh, to share their experiences, and in this case, my dad was giving them a lecture. And uh, so there you have it. Um, I think that kind of thing happens very frequently across our industry, uh, but in order to make it meaningful both for the younger people who are involved and for the seniors themselves, It can't be a happy accident. It really needs to be planned and cultivated so that it becomes part of an ongoing routine with richness as opposed to an isolated, you know, kind of rote exercise.
0: That makes sense. So can you talk a little bit about... I guess I'm wondering if you have any tips for other senior living providers out there without giving away your secret sauce because you've managed to build these communities uh, close to Berkeley, UCLA, here in the heart of Lincoln Park, close to DePaul University, really prime locations. And at least in, in the case of those California schools, it sounds like very close partnerships with the schools. So can you talk about what it takes to, I guess... Um, secure those sites and then really build the kind of relationship that you're talking about with those organizations that support this kind of intergenerational programming?
1: First, with respect to the universities themselves, first couple that you just described, uh, we were selected. So they knew that they wanted a partner who could execute this kind of a thing. And to be honest with you, once Uh, the regents in the University of California system and the chancellor kind of saw what we had accomplished with the first project. UC Berkeley, although they went through an RFP process, which we won, they really wanted to do this. So I think you have to have the want or an understanding on the part of the university of the benefits um, that they get. Our experience in acquiring the land has been varied, but I would say two things. One is especially uh, whether you all have university land, in the case of UC Berkeley we did, or you're acquiring the land, uh, as in the case of Lincoln Park as part of a mixed use, or UCLA. Uh, you've got to have a lot of patience. It's very, very difficult even if people appreciate the use. And even if you have the support of the Proximate University, it's very, very difficult to get zoning and entitlement. So you have to have a lot of patience. Start to finish, before we ever broke ground, the Berkeley Project, we were at it for five years and in Lincoln Park, seven. Uh, it's a long a long process and you have to have a long-term point of view with respect to the residual value you're creating, both economic and otherwise. Now, uh, with some examples and that, that are, have worked out very, very favorably, it becomes a little bit easier. So, for example, although we did not begin with an affiliation agreement per se with DePaul... We are already in conversation with multiple faculties about all the different things we can do, pretty much because the Lincoln Park campus is adjacent to them. It will afford a very rich experience for our residents and their students. So I think that, but but this is, these are conversations we're working uh, with another university right now on campus land, land, and these are conversations that are very uh, slow. Uh, these are not-for-profit institutions that are, by their very nature, uh, state-sponsored and cautious, and and rightfully so. So it takes a lot of patience and tenacity with respect to anything in urban infill. It's also quite expensive, but at the end of the day, and uh, and complex.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you can. And hereby, just talking a little bit about what you see as the future for intergenerational senior living, what is going to maybe take it to the next level? Um, I'm wondering if you think partnerships could be part of this. I know one of your capital partners is Harrison Street, and I think they have a significant business in university housing. You know, is it too bold to imagine dorms slash senior housing? Uh, you know, sharing a, a single roof even in the future?
1: It's not too bold at all, and in fact. Uh, we we have begun to engage in those kinds of mixed-use conversations. We have not yet looked at sharing a building uh, comparable to our Mexico City building where we have retail below us, a Hyatt Hotel above us, separate lobbies and elevator banks. That we have not yet looked at in a university context, although... In a land constrained environment, I could see that um, happening. I think that there are challenges, uh, to be honest with you, that mostly happen at night between <laughs> I mean, what young people want and what seniors want. So that kind of development has to be very sensitive to issues of noise. But there are trends on campuses now that are very interesting also. Uh, There are um, campuses that are moving toward healthy lifestyles, sobriety, exercise, and where students uh, sign a contract to abide by all of those things in exchange for a really rich environment and a healthy lifestyle. And I could easily see a combination of that kind of a dorm life with a senior's housing building.
0: Great. Well, this is really interesting, as always. Thanks so much for joining us, Patricia.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I think this is going to be, you know, I'm the baby boom generation. And I think that in answer to your earlier question, although it's already being done, I don't think it's being done for the baby boomers This is what I look forward to. I want the intellectual engagement and uh, my own parents' uh, resistance initially to moving to a Belmont village was not enough young people, too many old people, even though they were old or are old. So thank you for having me. I look forward to seeing how all this develops.
0: Before moving on to the second half of our show, we want to give another shout out to our podcast sponsor, Point Click Care. In our next segment, you'll hear an interview with Robert Turner, who worked on a really interesting intergenerational project with Otterbein Senior Life. That interview was conducted by Jack Silverstein, who works on Senior Housing News' research and reports. And Jack recently wrote an in-depth report on the rise of intergenerational living. So Jack's joined me now. And Jack, before we get to your interview with Robert, I just want to chat with you a bit about two things that I think are on the minds of all senior living providers these days, Occupancy and Revenue. So I'm curious, based on your research, do you see intergenerational living helping providers boost occupancy?
2: Yes, absolutely. Just from a a big picture perspective, one of the major drivers that we're seeing in the rise of intergenerational offerings in senior living is consumer demand. And on that basis, it is helping occupancy. There are a number of different ways that... Intergenerational living is being delivered. So it can be through programming, that's very common. Um, You know, you set up opportunities for your residents to work with nearby students of different ages, it can be done through the location of the community, so it's located near, you know, an all ages area or it's set in the middle of a city, urban senior living or mixed use. And it can also be in some cases where the community itself is intergenerational, where there's actual housing or units or neighborhoods for different age groups. And we're seeing a demand from consumers for these opportunities in whatever form they take. And in that respect, It's driving move-ins, it's impacting length of stay, it's helping people feel good about their day-to-day lives and their interactions because there are a lot of seniors who don't want to be only with the people of their age, and these are the kinds of living opportunities and living arrangements that are helping them live the kind of life they want, and that's intergenerational, and that is definitely impacting occupancy.
0: Terrific. And just on the revenue side, I think it seems to me there are definitely opportunities there as well. We're reporting on senior living communities built in mixed-use developments, like you were saying, location is one way to achieve intergenerational mingling. And the street levels of these buildings are starting to open more to the public, operating coffee shops, for example, that serve people on their way to work or who are in, in the area doing shopping. Uh, And the same goes for other amenities like gyms and salons, and all of that can bring in additional revenue. And then I also think there's a healthcare component here too. We see providers like Marquis based out of Oregon are operating their own Medicare Advantage plans. And so they have a lot of financial incentive to keep plan members well and out of higher cost settings like hospitals. And intergenerational connections I think can help achieve that goal by keeping residents engaged, giving them purpose through some of that programming we were talking about, like mentorship programs. Plus, these locations are often really walkable, mixed use, so that supports residents in getting out and keeping fit and staying active. So I think that all helps the MA plan be financially profitable, but also extends length of stay, ideally, which keeps the rental revenue stable as well. So I think on this note, maybe we should just transition to your interview with Robert and hear more about how a specific project is starting to bring some of these components into play.
2: Jack Silverstein here for Senior Housing News' Transform podcast. We are talking intergenerational living arrangements and opportunities in senior living. And I am joined now by Bob Turner, development management consultant for Union Village Development, Bob has a really interesting story. He worked on creating the Otterbein Senior Life wraparound model, the design for for this uh, 1,200 acres in Ohio, in Lebanon, Ohio, that is really going to transform the lives of uh, these senior living uh, residents. Bob, you got introduced to Otterbine based on the work that you did in Habersham, South Carolina, and it's been a personal journey for you as well. Why don't you tell me how this Habersham Master Plan came along, what exactly it is, and give uh, give listeners a sense of how this feeds into what you have now done with Otterbine, which is a uh, is a wraparound. Community mixed, you know, mixed use, um, intergenerational community around an existing senior living community in Lebanon.
3: Well, we we uh, started Habersham late, probably ninety nine, and it's a mixed use, uh, new urbanist project, and has about a thousand total dwelling units. When it's built out, um, we've built about five hundred twenty five homes so far to date, and it's um, we have a. Single-family and multi-family, smaller homes, cottage homes, and, and larger homes, and kind of our goal and the goal with uh, New Urbanism, as we did Haversham, and this is about our third project we've done, but has always been just to create an environment where all multi-generational families can live. So you, you, and we also have a village center. Kind of one of the key components for that is, you know, making the neighborhood walkable so from 8 to 80 kids that are 8 years old could walk up and get ice cream and 80 years old can walk up and get ice cream so the idea is you know is as, as uh, and you design for the the human scale and not necessarily for the car so you make the roads safer and narrower and create sidewalks and so forth and so on so you know the goal has always been to just create the best neighborhood and our goal's always been to hit every market available to us um we didn't want to just segregate one age group or one You know younger older type market we just wanted to have everybody that could live together Um, and in doing so what we realized is we've kind of had residents here who've been here a long time and really enjoy living here and that have asked about you know hey when I need a little extra care the next level of care what's gonna happen then so we have been you know in the last few years researching assisted living providers to try to team up with us and fill in one of our blocks or the property we bought some property next door to work on that, so we could we could provide even you know to the level of a little higher end care and and not just home health care, but beyond that. So that's that's kind of a goal to kind of hit the to hit that level as well, because so many people here that love living here and want to live here, but they just need maybe or one spouse needs that extra extra level of care. So that's why we've been very interested in, especially since obviously there's this huge amount of boomers that are entering ages of which in which they do need a little more care so that's what we're looking at
2: definitely now you mentioned the 8 to 80 principle for listeners who are unfamiliar with new urbanism what is the the easiest way to describe its principles and and, and what it is
3: uh, new Urbanist is basically Really not, and nothing new. It's an old model. Um, it's it's understanding the towns and villages throughout. I mean, United early towns and villages throughout the United States and even Europe. In which you know houses are built closer to the street. Houses have porches. The houses are closer together. Everything is walkable. Ideally, you know everything from groceries to dentists to hair salons to so you you restaurants, gyms. So you create neighborhoods in which it, not only is it safe to walk because the cars are the roads are choked down and narrowed down to reduce speed, but it's also appealing to walk. So you walk in front of homes to get to where you're going. And the idea is, you know, you can frankly live in one of these neighborhoods and not own a car. Now, you know, you have the cities that have, have always been doing that forever, and but these are projects. A lot of them are um, infill in cities, but a lot of them are greenfield projects. So they're building these neighborhoods maybe out in the suburbs, but they are built. They're completely kind of self-contained as much as possible. So the idea is you could live, work, play, all in your uh, in within your neighborhood.
2: Yeah. So otterbine Senior Life came to you because of the work that you did at Habersham. This is a 200-acre CCRC in Ohio, and the company owned for a long time 1,200 acres of land surrounding it. It, it owned a bigger a parcel and slowly sold off pieces of those. It had purchased 4,500 acres in 1912, sold off pieces of those, and then owned today 1,400 1,440 acres, only 200 of which was used for senior living. And they had these 1,200 acres around the community that they wanted to develop in some way that would be beneficial for the residents. You then had this experience with Habersham that kind of brought you into senior living, which I think is an interesting story because a lot of people seek out who are in senior living seek out to do it you didn't necessarily. So tell me, when Otterbine came to you, what were they looking for and what did you think you would be able to deliver?
3: Well, the chairman of the board of Otterbine at the time had a home. We're down in South Carolina and he had a home down in this area and had been, had, was familiar with our project. And they've always had this land and they've always wanted to do something with it. They just did not want to do the conventional, what I would call suburban sprawl. They wanted to do something that is, um, you know, more of a legacy project, um, something that, you know, they're going to be proud of. They have the land, they have the time, and they really want to do it right. So they, they saw what we did, and we linked up with uh, Tom Compton, who was chairman at the time, and he introduced us to the uh, board of Otterbein, And, you know, we pitched the idea that, you know, we can develop a multi generational neighborhood around them that will also enhance what they're doing by building a a village center across the street from the existing campus. But also, you know, provide their goal is to provide housing and improve the lives of elders. That's their mission. And understanding that some of our housing would even be housing that would help solve that mission. Because we would build houses that are smaller and one story and on smaller lots, less maintenance and even condominiums and apartments that they can then, you know, use those, live in those homes while they're um, eventually and eventually maybe move across the street. So they saw this as a great advantage. So since then, we've gone through the planning process, we've got the zoning, and we're under construction with the first phase of of the property, which includes a village center, which will be directly across the street from... The Otterbein campus. And, so, go ahead.
2: And this is this is ultimately going to be a
3: forty to fifty year
2: expansion, correct?
3: Yes, it's a it's a long term project. We wanted to plan. They had this land. They wanted to plan for the future. You know, there's going to be recessions along the way, and they understand that. And it's really going to be. To, we've kind of projected almost a forty five year master plan. Um, we'll build it as we as, as we move along, and. You know, kind of work through the the markets and and provide housing that you know from apartments to condos to to townhomes to single family homes at all different price points. That's our goal.
2: No, that's very interesting. How has that changed your view of what role a well, I'll speak specifically of you. You as a as a as a previously just all ages developer, how have these two experiences changed your view of how all ages developers should be looking at the opportunity in senior living?
3: Well, one of the things I've seen is and with my grandparents and I went through this recently with my father, but most you know that since world war 2 the trend of development has been away from it's been segregated in the form of uh, you know pods of developments that are all segregated maybe by price we separated commercial from residential and all these things have occurred since world war 2 and when you kind of look back and realize the old neighborhoods the really old neighborhoods built in the late 1800s early 1900s You really didn't have, you didn't see a lot of these CCRCs. There really, there were some, you know, there certainly was housing for people that need additional care, but the people kind of stayed in their neighborhood much longer. Their families were generally closer to them, so they took care of them. And, you know, it didn't leave. But since, since we've kind of gone and changed the development pattern since World War II and created kind of the sprawl, it's created a need for these suburban, what I call suburban CCRCs, that you know, are kind of segregated. And I feel like, you know, most of them are built on a a parcel outside of a town or, you know, on the edge of town or in the suburbs, and they're not connected to any commercial. And if they are, they're maybe on a really busy road in which it's very unsafe to walk. So, you know, there's, I've seen that happen and I've said, you know, there's just got to be a better model. And, you know, in most of these CCRCs there, you know, you have a, you know, a hair salon and maybe a little cafe and you have a, you know, coffee shop. There's different things that you have that are built into those that we already have that you had in these small towns. Literally, you had all those services in your main street. The houses were close enough and safe enough to walk to, and people could walk and get those services when they couldn't drive any longer. So, we've been developing projects, you know, that are going back to that model of development, but realizing that, you know, hey, this is, you know, not only, it's not really serving the main market we thought, but it's really a great service to the senior market, allowing them to stay in their home much longer. So, yeah, you know, that's kind of, we, we just kind of saw the connection there. You know, now we're looking at the longer term connection for, for a little more assisted care. You know, that's, that's the one thing that we're trying to figure out you know, how to connect to our projects a little bit better.
2: What was Otterbine envisioning before you came along and made your pitch?
3: Um, I, I I don't know for sure. I know they had a, a developer prior to us who had when we saw a plan had worked with a group of students and developed a plan, but it was very very heavy on heavy commercial, and it was uh, there was a incredible amount of commercial built into the plan, and to me it had no sense of connection and neighborhood, and and typically you know you design these neighborhoods that's a five minute walk, so every for every five minutes of walk time you would create a neighborhood center, and a neighborhood center may include, you know, maybe it's just a cafe, maybe it's a corner store, maybe it's, um, you know, kind of a couple little shops. But you try to incorporate a series of little villages and especially a track of 1,000 acres that you – because there's several areas with, with five-minute walks. You create a centralized village every five minutes. That's, um, and you may have a main village, but you have these smaller villages in which people can walk and kind of go to those centralized areas, plus you know, parks and greenways are all built into these type projects. So you're always a few minutes away from a green or a park, and therefore your lot doesn't have to be as big because you have the opportunity to go, the kids can go play in a park, you can go sit in a park, and there's not as much need for these large, large lots that you see in the subub- suburban subdivisions.
2: And in addition to that, in addition to the benefits for the seniors, there are going to be benefits for the staff as well, because they will be able to have housing if needed within that wraparound. Is that correct?
3: That's exactly right. We're trying to work with some apartments and Develop um, product that will actually allow people to work and and be close to the people they're taking care of. I mean, I think that's important as well. So you have, it's so important for seniors and younger people to reconnect. I think we've lost that in past generations. I think we've kind of segregated again our our ages, segregated places that people live, and I think this is a great way to kind of re- reconnect them.
2: Does that bring? I guess you could look at this uh, one of two ways. What you now have is that. You, as an all ages uh, developer, you are creating senior living communities or, or addendums to senior living communities, or you're, you're creating living environments that impact seniors and senior housing. And that means that you're either going to be seen as a competitor to a senior living operator and a senior living uh, developer, or as a potential collaborator. How are you looking to manage those new relationships?
3: I would look at it as a collaborator, but we, we are not skilled in, in the nursing level and, and a lot of the understand that's not what we do as a development company. And, and there's people that do that much, much better than we do. What we'd like to do is you start looking at neighborhoods that are designed to include that component within instead of having a kind of a, a suburban island CCRC that's you know completely self-contained, surrounded by shopping or, I mean, busy roads or, you know, things in which it's very difficult to go beyond the parking lot, um, we'd love to see hey, let's, com- let's put that right in the center of our neighborhood. And so, it's very simple and very safe for seniors to walk and uh, stroll, you know, and walk to the parks and so forth and so on. So, I-, I see it as a collaboration that they can bring that to new urbanist communities which are not skilled at that level of care. And then, you know, what we also find is that we have people that live here that a spouse may need further care. And, you know, one spouse wants to stay in the house and the other spouse, you know, needs to be maybe in nursing care. And, you know, it, it's a big conflict because there's it's a, typically a long drive to go from there to a place in which you can take care of your your spouse versus maybe being in the same neighborhood or 10-minute walk from, five-minute walk from where you live. So... I think that's a great advantage. Certainly.
2: Is is this kind of senior-centric, we'll call it, intergenerational development something you're now looking to do more of?
3: Yeah, I feel like, you know, in, in general, that's the one kind of a little bit of, you know, I feel like new urbanism, the model of new urbanism hits many goals of uh, – and, and and the history has proven it correct in which great – you know, these great cities that were built – Hundreds of years ago, that people just flocked to. I always use Charleston to our north which is an example of people will come and stay a week in this small in this town and ride a horse and horseback carriage for you know in the middle of the summer and 95 degree weather and you know to just to look at the houses that are there. And it's re- in reality, why aren't we building those neighborhoods now? And you can imagine building a neighborhood that great in which people would drive in and ride a horseback carriage through the neighborhood and say. just to look at the houses. I mean, we've kind of lost our way. And I think building neighborhoods now that sustain, that last, that socially, environmentally, um, this is kind of the new trend. But new urbanism has fell a little short in the long-term care. Uh, It's generally, that's kind of not, you know, as long as you're kind of somewhat mobile and can move, it serves a lot of those needs, much longer than typical neighborhoods. But I think that, you know, the next level would be, you know, in some neighborhoods, even w- with further care it would be very nice to have those mixed into and a lot of a lot of new urbanist developers are looking in, are doing that now are looking for developers to team up with.
2: And you are bringing that into Habersham now, correct?
3: Yeah, we've been looking and we've kind of laid out a couple scenarios of how it could fit into our neighborhood. And it just fits right into the fabric of the block structure. So there's, you know, there's shared parking on the street. It's close to our village center in which, you know, you could walk and maybe even ride golf carts. So we've made it, you know, we've, we're have we looking at that as a, a really great thing that we can bring into our project currently.
2: You know, it strikes me as very interesting because you didn't know that you were going to be making a a senior living or, or enhancing a senior living community. Otterbein didn't necessarily know that its residents were going to have their lives enhanced by new urbanism design and principles. Now that you've seen how the pieces fit together, what do you think senior living communities miss by not knowing about new urbanism and not considering that as they move forward with a a new piece of development or, you know, repositioning of a product, things like that.
3: Well, again, I think it goes back to a little bit of age segregation. I mean, they're designing their projects to meet a certain target market, um, specifically a defined market. And... You know, in, le- in learning through this last recession, the Great Recession, I mean, what what you kind of realize is you've got to be appealing to all markets and you've got to be able to make adjustments. And I think what they're missing, you know, at some level is the idea that, you know, intermingling younger people with these facilities and, you know, being able to have that interaction with younger families. And I think, you know, people feel younger when they're around younger people. And so I feel like that's something that we can provide in these neighborhoods, and then they can provide the care that we need for the, the you know the older aged population. I think it can work really well together
2: we uh, you and I first spoke for our uh, senior housing news report on intergenerational opportunities, and I identified embracing the tenets of new urbanism as one of six trends that are changing the face of intergenerational Senior living. The other the other ones that we uh, that we identified is the way that intergenerational developments can be almost like the new mixed use, lifelong aging in place. The power of affinity groups, building partnerships even with competitors that touches on your experience. And then urban senior living in reverse, which is what you were talking about with Otterbine. Ordinarily, you have an urban center, and then you put the senior living community in the middle of it what you all did was the opposite you had the senior living community you're building the urban experience you know and the community experience around that you had a chance to take a look at our report and take a look at the trends what stood out to you in this report anything that really surprised you anything that made you change the way you saw a particular topic
3: not really i mean i feel like you you hit a lot of the the different things that are happening i think you know that going into the level of you know fine grain like co-housing specifically housing design designing houses you know you you basically design the house the block the neighborhood the town you know in kind of that order so being able to design housing one of the things we we had to actually push and fight for here in Habersham was the um garage apartment you know and it wasn't something that was typically in the zoning codes or at, at any time it's now become kind of popular and it's it's being written into a lot of zoning codes but just the idea of having that housing so you know we have several residences that have built you know on slab on grade kind of garage apart or little apartments with a garage on the side maybe to have you know, their parents come and stay there when they need to. So the idea of even the housing design is becoming more and more as more families are staying together, less empty nesters aren't leaving the nest, staying at home much longer. And then the senior, senior population. So I thought that was really intriguing, some of the different design techniques that people are doing on that as well. But no, I thought, I think that, you know, you hit a lot of the good points and what we need to be thinking about in the future for, for this, for all kinds of housing, really, because things are changing quite a bit. You've got this millennial market that's now surpassed the boomer market and, you know, their, their, their needs are quite different than, you know, the market was before them or after, you know, before them. So we got to be thinking that way.
2: It definitely seemed to me that one of the big trends in intergen it is tied into a broader trend in senior living, which is just this merging of property types, purposes, you know, strategic partnerships and, and, and collaborations that bring different kinds of services together that integrate different kinds of services. And that seems right in line with intergenerational, this idea that there are benefits for seniors to be with younger people and vice versa, and that people should be considering that as they build.
3: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So we've got to we've got to look at that and understand that and try to build places that are really, to me, what I think are, you know, gonna be around for two hundred years and we're gonna be looking back at saying, What a great, what a great place to live, you know. And to do that, you just you have to hit all the economic, the social, you just gotta hit the buttons at work. And there's ways to do that. And you know, basically what new urbanism is is what they call a form-based code the code isn't designed to use, really. It's not designed as you can't say you could have a little grocery store next to a single family house, like most codes are designed. It says, well, as long as you do that, they have to sit, they have to look in the same scale and form. So that little corner store may look like a house with an apartment above it. And it fits right next to a single family house. And you see this all over the country. But our new zoning codes or, you know, the latest zoning codes, really a lot of them don't allow you to do that. You have to completely separate and many times buy a parking lot and to, and to add insult to injury a ditch so people can't get to the little corner store. And so, you know, I think what's happening across the country now, this form-based code is starting to apply and being approved and it's making it easier to do these kinds of projects. And that would allow senior care facilities to be very closely knitted into the neighborhood of single family and multifamily homes.
2: And it also sounds like something that is aligned with senior living's, you know, overall mission of providing care, safety, lifestyle, you know, and really enhancing the quality of life. Absolutely. Yes. Fabulous. Well, I I really want to thank you, Bob, for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. This was really fascinating work. Okay, well thank you. All right, thanks so much.
0: And that does it for this episode of Transform. I'd like to give another shout out to our sponsor, Point Click Care. Until next time, I'm Tim Mullaney with Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.